Good morning to all of you. It's definitely good to be here, <clears throat> be here this morning. I know a lot of you. I certainly don't know all of you and uh, know some familiar faces. Some of you I do know a whole lot better than others. Rachel, it's good to see you. <laughs> and Emmanuel and uh, Ben and Barb. And I better not start listing people. We do serve in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and the group that's here will be sharing about the work uh, uh, of IGO, which stands for Institute for Global Opportunities. Prior to that, I will share a short message here this morning, but uh, it is just really good to be here back at Peckway again. Suzette and I and our youngest son traveled this week. We just arrived here on Thursday after traveling for 21 plus hours or so. I don't know, it was a long time. <laughs> About the last two or three hours, the last flight was about 14 hours. About the last two or three hours, I was pretty done and uh, just ready to get back on the ground. So it is good to be here, and uh, we're excited about sharing with you this morning. Also good to have one of your people uh, on our team. We were blessed to have Jamin as a student, and so we'll talk about Igo later. So for a message this morning, I t ask you to take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21, a uh, familiar account. Uh, we sometimes give it the title of the triumphal entry, but I'd like for us just to think about a few things out of this account in which Jesus presents himself to Jerusalem as the Messiah. Now I realize we recognize he was doing that in part uh, up until this point, but the triumphal entry to me is there's just a declaration of a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy I am your king. And we know that the Jews rejected him, but we, we find this account prior to what we're calling the triumphal entry. So Matthew 21, I'd like to read the first 11 verses. There's only a few words I'd like us to highlight, and I will tell you what those are after I read these verses. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. Let's start, uh, we'll start reading there. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, ye shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come in Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. I'd like us to note three words or a combination of words, combination of three words found in this text. The first one is found in verse 2, just a two-letter word, imperative. It is the word go. Jesus called his disciples or two of his disciples. He says, I want you to go. So hold on to that two-letter word. Look at verse 6. Next two words I want us to think about is the fulfillment of that going is the word went and did went and did. 
So we're thinking about go, we're thinking about went and did, and then the third word is found in verse 9 is the word blessed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or we could also insert there praise to him that comes in the name of the Lord. And so our words are go, went and did, and blessed or praised. Now let's just think about this account. It's not that difficult of an account. But Jesus calls two of his disciples, and he gives them the instructions. He says, I want you to go into the city, and when you go into the city, this is what you're going to find. You say this, they'll say this to you, and they had this instructions, but you go, bring the donkey, bring the colt, and you come back to me. And so these verses tell us that the disciples did exactly what they were told. They went into the city, they found the donkey, they got the colt, they come back. Now I'd like for us just to think through this this morning, or just this one basic question. And I want you to just to process this in your mind. The question is, what if the two disciples had never obeyed the simple word to go? Jesus said, I want you to go. Now I'm asking us this morning, what would we think of these two disciples if they had never gone? Would it really have made a difference? I think through that a little bit. Jesus said, go. And we know they went. But just suppose, verse 6 read like this, uh, after Jesus gave the command, suppose it read like this. So the disciples went not and did not as Jesus commanded them. They brought not the donkey and the colt and laid not their clothes on them and set him on them. What if the disciples had never gone? Would it really be a big deal? Would it really matter? How would we think about that? Would we call these disciples disobedient? Now, in this context, I realize the outcome is different for the one than the other. But we have Judas and we have Peter in this context setting that also has, what do I call them, flaws, <laughs> errors, things they did that are remembered about them. Judas handed Jesus over to the Jews. He betrayed him. Peter denied him. We know the one repented, the other one we're not sure whether they went and hung himself, but how he processed all that. But what if these two had never obeyed? Would we put them into that same camp as Peter and Judas? Do we consider it serious this morning if these two had never gone into the city, but the question I want us to think about, would it really have made a difference? What do we think? Do we really view them as they would have been disobedient? Do we consider it a big deal if they had never gone? Well, that's not what happened. Verse 6 tells us that they did go and they did do. And as a result of that, many people worshipped. Because of the obedience of two, many people worshipped. Now, we don't know how many people were in that crowd. We don't know you know, how many were there, uh, 
You know, we call it Palm Sunday. We don't know. But I believe it was a big crowd, and I believe there was a lot of praise. And because of the obedience of two, they put Jesus on the donkey. He entered triumphantly, and true worship occurred because of the obedience of two. Would it have made a difference if the two had never followed that simple word to go? Now, if you are with me and you know how mission speakers preach and talk and where they go, you probably can figure out where I'm going with this. There's another go in scripture. Matthew chapter 28, turn to what we call the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. There was a go in chapter 21. There's also a go in Matthew 28. And we probably know these verses, maybe a little more familiar with these verses, but Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Here's our goal. Verse 19, Go ye, or because all authority, all power has been given unto me. Jesus spoke this after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. He is the resurrected Lord, saying, All authority is given unto me. Therefore, go. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy, Spirit, Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even on the end of the world. Now let's just compare the goes and ask this question. If it had been a big deal in chapter 21, if the two had never gone into the city, is it a big deal if we do not go today? What do we think? If we would criticize the two, had they not gone and we would step back and say, oh, and we were critical of them, of their disobedience, is there any level of criticalness that we should be holding to the church today? In Matthew 21, the command was specific to two. In Matthew 28, the command is specific for who? For all, all of us. Jesus said to go. And because two went in chapter one, worship occurred. And I believe today, and I've seen proof of it, when people go, worship also occurs. Now, I realize the, re the fruit and the results of, of going and serving in ministry and serving in missions greatly can vary. And I realize it's not all the same. And we, we go out of obedience, not necessarily what fruit or results may happen. But I can testify from our part of the world that there's fruit that's happening because people have gone. Even people upon their own native people as they go out and serve and obey the words of Matthew 28, worship occurs. And so this morning my heart's desire is to stir our hearts again to ask the question, what am I doing with the go of Matthew 28? And I realize it brings up all kinds of scenarios and discussions and things like, well, we can't all go. You know, if we all went, and uh, I don't know how to process this sometimes. We are 
We are blessed, my wife and I are blessed to be able to serve where we have served because people have supported us and encouraged us. And some of those people are here this morning and, and uh, allowed us to do, in some sense, what has been, I should say, the dream of our hearts, but just has been a tremendous blessing to be able to serve with Igo. I'm not here this morning to say where you should be. But I am here to remind us that Matthew 28 applies to every one of us. And going may be some translate this while you are going. So it doesn't matter where we live, it's while we're going, we're to teach and make disciples. But this morning my heart carries a weight and we have a men's or us men on staff there with the institute have an accountability group There's five or six of us, five of us met every two weeks and we just kind of share how we're doing and, and it's just been a really enjoyable experience. One of our last meetings that I met with them before we came back here, we, we were sitting sharing together and this is one of the things I shared. I said, one of the things that is real for me coming back to States is I don't always know how to process a burden that feels so real and maybe connecting that to our church back home, our churches back home. And I have great appreciation for our churches back home. And I think every one of these students, our goal at IGO is to, to send them back home and be better church members than when they came. We want to stay connected with the home church. We're not trying to be independent of the home church. But I said to my brothers, the reality, and this is where it's at, that our world has a portion of the people of our world that are termed unreached, have never ever heard the gospel, have never had opportunity to hear the gospel. If you look up statistics, our population right now is currently around 7.9 billion people. And just a basic breakdown of our world today or our population is you can divide it into threes and they're not necessarily equal three parts, but a part that says we're Christians, third of the world. Now, if you, you really can break that down further because I think they put Catholicism in that category as well. Uh, and it could even break down to almost to 12, 15% that maybe are born again, faithful, living out Christians. But a third of our world says they're Christians. Another third of our world says that or they're part of, they maybe don't say, but they're in the category of they have heard but not accepted. The gospel's been available to them. They're your neighbors. They're people that live here in our cultures that have a Bible bookstore next to them. Now I want you to know, we don't need to go real far. When our oldest daughter got married and moved into Reading and was there in the row house, the people that lived next to her, she... Uh, had the children over one day and she said, and she had a Bible story book there and she said, no, well, let's look at a Bible story book. Uh, she said, which story do you want to read or should I read to you? And uh, should I read about, and I forget which one she said. And those children said to her, we don't know what you're talking about. There's people, quote, unreached right beside us. But the reality is my daughter was there. They had access to the gospel. But it is so hard this morning for our minds to grasp 
that there's a third of our world that has never had the gospel nor has access to the gospel. Unless you and I go. Unless someone goes. And I don't always, I'm not, the last thing I do, and I say this to our home churches, uh, for those of you who know, I had served as bishop for five years, and so I have three churches that have blessed us and supported us to go, and I go home, and we come back to the States, I preach, at the, preach there, uh, each of those churches. And the last thing I want to do is come across critical and come across like I'm condemning them because I don't feel like Suzette and I or our family is any better than any other family here. But I do carry a burden. And there's something I don't know how to process, and that is that a part of the world has never heard and doesn't concern our churches. And I realize not all of us will ever go, but I long, and this is, these guys heard it before, and I long for them to go home back to their churches and help educators say, this is what we saw, this is what we felt. How long for our churches, our ministers, our ministers means to have on their agenda, what are we going to do about the unreached part of the world? How can we help our churches have a greater burden? Someone just shared here this morning about uh, refugee families. Excellent opportunity to expand our world, to open our box. But what are those countries that we could bring to our prayer meetings and say, let's pray for this country tonight. There's only a certain amount of percent Christians in this group. And we here on this side of the world could impact countries like we live in that has 1%, maybe a little bit higher, term Christian. In the country of Thailand, I think it's Okay, off the top of my head, maybe 92% Buddhist. There's a Muslim population, 1% Christian. And when you meet a fellow believer in Chiang Mai, they may not always look and act like we do or practice the way we do, but you sure have some a whole lot more in common with them than you do with your Buddhist neighbor. And I love to tell our IGO students that we as conservative Baptist people have something to offer the world. We live in a Buddhist culture. But I'm convinced those going into Muslim culture, we have an avenue by the way we practice and apply scripture, we, that's is why we do it, but because we do it, how we live it out, have an avenue to go into a religious group that practice strict rules but they see something that, oh, here's some other people, and it's not what they have uh, had this worldview of what Christianity is. And we're not here to throw it all away. We're here to say, we have something to offer the world. And it's so exciting to see that happen. But one third of our world has never heard. You may have heard of the 1040 window, where the 1040 window is uh, 10 degrees to 40 degrees north latitude of the equator. Covers the areas of North Africa, Middle East, and Asia. It's the least unreached part of the world. Three main religions there, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. And we need people that are willing to go. Thailand rests within the 1040 window. Thailand is a country where, Thailand is not a closed country as some of our neighbors are on that side of the world. But Thailand allows Christians. In Chiang Mai, there's a lot of Christian missions 
operate Chiang Mai as our base and, and go into other countries. But Thailand still is a country that has resisted the gospel. A man that we probably wouldn't endorse all its theology, but I, this quote has, I've known this quote for many years, but John Piper once said, missions exist because worship does not. I've added to that, missions be, exist because true worship does not. There's worship happens in Thailand. I said of a man I know who is a Buddhist monk, and you can go into a temple and you see people bowing down to idols. And I said something to him one day. I said something about him praying to idols. He said, oh, we're not praying to idols. We're just quoting the teachings of the Buddha. Oh, you can't convince me that there's no worship happening because it's such a part of their life. These Buddhist monks are wearing orange garb. They come through our Mubon or our neighborhood and they chant these things and the people come out of their houses and bow down to them and pour water on the ground. There's a lot of worship happening. There's a lot of fear happens within Buddhism. There's an atomistic side where they're scared. We walk into our house. There's steps building certain places. We have a step. You step down into the bathroom or you step down to go into the kitchen. I remember first time we were in Thailand, I said to to Rick Rhodes, I said, why do you have all these steps? He said, because Buddhist people are fearful of spirits and they believe that spirits can't go steps. So they actually build their houses in a certain way so the spirits, you know, can't come into their houses or they have a, out front of their house, they have a spirit house. And they believe that if we put food out there at that spirit house, we'll attract the spirits to the spirit house and we'll keep them out of our house. Unreached people. Missions exist because true worship does not. And as we take students through one or two semesters, and a semester is it's divided into three parts. We call them terms. The term is three weeks of classes where we desire to teach and, and go over principles, not all just mission principles, but biblical principles, and then we send them out on a 10-day ministry trip, and they experience some of what they heard in the classroom. They come back, and we can discuss that together. Our goal is to train young men and women, or whoever comes, to have a vision and a burden for the gospel. Do we expect everyone to come back and serve within Asia, the 1040 window? No. But we do long for every one of our students to go back and in a faithful way serve their home church if God somewhere down the road taps on their hearts and say, we want you to come to the unreached people of the world, we say, praise the Lord. That's our burden. And so this morning, we'd like to have our students share with you. So let me just give you this yet. We, um, we ended our semester on the 22nd, I think, and then we had a staff retreat for the students left, most of them, and then we had a staff retreat for three or four days uh, a week later. Yeah, the one person that was our speaker did four sessions is working with ABT. He's uh, actually over in Thailand right now, training at one of our colleges there, but his plans are uh, his, under ABT, at All Nations Bible Translations, Conservative Anabaptist Bible Translation Group. And, and anyhow, sometimes when I look at that whole thing, like, that third of the world that's unreached, or even the two-thirds that don't know the gospel. And 7.9 you know, billion people total, and you know, I can just feel so overwhelming. I, I think it's every time I fly, 
you just see people upon people upon people, and you end up kind of just clumping them together, right? They're just one big clump. And, you know, I remember we went to India one time, and I looked at the crowds, and I said, where do you even begin? And then I was teaching, this is before we had moved to Thailand, I was teaching at IGO for a three-week term, and we were in India first, we went to Thailand, and Val Yoder preached a sermon that first Sunday, and he used this phrase, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Not any one of us here is going to save the world, but you can do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And one life at a time, people are changed. Well, yeah, back to our retreat. Our speaker gave some statistics in his first session that just, for those of us who are over there on that side of the world, it just stirred our hearts. We sometimes think the kingdom of God is on the losing side. It's not. Let me just read some of this. Bible translation in every language. If you follow any of this, it's exciting. I think it had been a, was estimated to be a 2150 was the year that every uh, people group should have a Bible in their own language. It has now been moved up here, these states here to 2042. It's actually believed it could be a lot e earlier that every people group could have the Bible in their own language. No Christian was allowed to live in Nepal up until 1960. There's now a church in every district of Nepal which estimates over half a million believers. About 500 Muslims come to faith every month, month in Iran. 20,000 Africans come to faith every day on the continent of Africa. 3% in the 1900s, 150% today. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church and was considered impossible to reach. Now it's 30% Christian with 7,000 churches in the capital. There are 60 to 80 million Christians in, in China. More people worldwide are praying for worldwide, worldwide revival than ever before. Sometimes these are the things we don't hear. And we left after that session just being extremely encouraged. God, Jesus Christ, is building his kingdom. And we're just here this morning to encourage you to be a part of that kingdom. So, <clears throat> the students that are here this morning, uh, some of them were with us at IGO for two semesters, which would have been about eight months. Some of them were there for one semester. And uh, we had a really good year. We had a hard year. And uh, I don't know what all COVID means to you or to your family, but in Thailand and, and restrictions we had there and how they handle it, uh, it definitely impacted our year. But we had closed the year before we as a staff were just so excited to be able to open up again. And God led us through six semesters, or six terms, that's through six terms. The first five, we did not have COVID at all. One of our big 